Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. And surprise, we're going to get right into it today, because I've got a great interview with a new guest. I will say quick that, as always, you're invited to join us on Twitter at at E-I-S-T-P-O-D, or on Facebook in our Facebook discussion group, Enterprising Interlocutions. Also, you can join us on the Just Enough Trope Discord and talk with us about Star Trek, films, TV shows, comic books, video games, everything the nerd inside of you won't shut up about. Join us on Discord. I'll leave a link to join that Discord in the show notes. We'll see you there. And please consider joining our crew by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. We spent a lot of time this season interrogating the utopia that Trek presents and asking how all the individual parts of it work. Something I've always wondered about is how education has changed in the Federation's egalitarian, scarcity-free society. When you think about it, nearly every character that we follow on every Trek series are all alums of the same school, Starfleet Academy. They all need specific and varied training to perform their duties. And yet, Keiko's one-room school on DS9 is about as deep as we go into education in the Star Trek universe. It should be really important, assuming they're not just beaming smarts into their heads uh, or using uh, knowledge tapes or something sci-fi like that. What does a 24th century classroom look like? How is the utopia of the Federation change learning in the future? Tell me they're at least taking cool field trips in the holodeck. We touched on this subject briefly when I talked with Dr. Mohamed Noor earlier this year, but I wanted to go deeper into the subject with somebody who is on the front lines of education today, and that's why Kelly Fitzpatrick is on the show. In addition to being a writer and a community activist, Kelly also teaches high school English as well as classes on the process of writing for aspiring young authors. During the interview, Kelly and I talk about how Trek depicts learning, the teaching tools of the future, the way that education breaks down our societal barriers. It's a fascinating topic, and Kelly was a great guest, so I hope you enjoy the show. We'll be back next week and for the rest of October with some spooky Star Trek content, so join us then. For now, grab your stack of pads and get ready to study your three R's, Riker, Romulans, and Arachtogeno. And with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Kelly Fitzpatrick. Kelly is an author, a teacher, and a community activist who is a winner of the 2016 Strange New Worlds competition. She also writes flash fiction, and her essays on genre entertainment have been featured in various anthologies and on womenatwarp.com. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. I always ask new guests on the show how they first became Star Trek fans. When did you first discover Star Trek? I discovered Star Trek watching it with my parents, especially my dad. He's a huge Trekkie. And Voyager was my first Trek. That wow. was the one that kind of set the the bar for me for what Star Trek was. And I just adored Captain Janeway um, <laughs> yeah. and really the whole crew and the, the whole story of them, you know, trying to get home and all their interactions with the other species uh, and then kind of discovered the other series uh as I went. When you were watching Voyager, did you have a perception of it being a part of the legacy of, you know, a larger franchise or was it just, you know, oh, it's this Voyager show that I really like and wait a minute, there's more? 
Yeah, I was pretty young. Um, (laughs) So I want to say like early middle school or something. And so I had no idea. Um, You know, I I had seen things that said Star Trek on them. And and my dad had a lot of Star Trek novels. Um, And so I kind of knew who like Spock and Kirk were, but um, I never saw an original series episode until I think I was in college. Um, So really, it was just, you know, Voyager at first. And then um, I remember watching Deep Space Nine. Um, and, uh, I remember Jordy from, uh, from next yeah, gen the yeah. most because I was, uh, you know, a fan of reading rainbow when I was a kid. And so I was like, ah, it's, it's LeVar Burton. I know <laughs> that person, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but it was very much a family, uh, affair. And so, yeah. Yeah. He does. He does make an appearance, I think in that one episode of Voyager. And then of course, uh, Barkley becomes a part of the storyline as the, thing goes on but yeah as you get farther out from tos and tng those kind of in references that that, that they like to put uh get sort of uh, fewer on the ground like i'm trying to think about enterprise except for the infamous ending i mean there's no real way to connect you know the earlier show's characters into what's going on in enterprise they like drop little hints, you know, like in the in the opening episode of Enterprise, they say something like, since when do we have Vulcan science officers, you know, right. but you, you really have to be like a true kind of fan, I think, to pick those up. Because I remember watching Enterprise the first time through, I really enjoyed the series, but I did not get all of those references yeah, until, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, rewatches. So. Or they've got uh, James Cromwell, like in the first episode or whatever. And it's like, this guy is, seems important somehow. Was he in some other thing? <laughs> Uh, You're a high school English teacher and English students, of course, are assigned to read lots of plays and novels and short stories for class. Have you ever used any Star Trek literature or media in your curriculum? So not directly as part of the curriculum. I have pulled it up uh, a few times as like in little clips as examples of different uh, you know, uh, literary devices or, or whatever we happen to be talking about um, in the curriculum. Yeah. Um, I also advise a creative writing group um, that meets after school once a week, and we do quite a bit of discussion <laughs> of Star Trek in there because I <laughs> usually have a couple of kids who, uh, you know, are all over that. Um, so, but the kids know, like they know that I have written Star Trek. They know that I'm a Trekkie. I have posters in my room, you know, that have space and sure. Hubble photos and Star Trek stuff all over it. And so um, it comes up in conversation um, because I think it's important for kids to see us being passionate about the things that we love yeah. and talking about that to them. Um, so it, it's a great like way to connect to the kids. Yeah. Can you talk about the genesis of that, uh, the idea for the after school writing group? So I want to say it was like my second year of teaching. I'm going into my eighth year. So this was about five years, five, six years ago. Okay. And uh, NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing sure. Month yeah. uh, in November. And I was uh, messing around writing, you know, short stories and flash fiction and stuff at the time. And I decided, you know, it would be really cool to just give this a shot, you know, this (laughs) this whole 50,000 words in a month, whatever. And I had a lot of really dedicated uh, students at the time that really enjoyed creative writing. And so I had this crazy idea. I'm going to go into school tomorrow and I'm going to pitch and say, 
uh, are there any students who would like to do this with me? And we'll just meet a couple times a week at lunch in my room and we'll, you know, encourage each other and talk about what we're writing. And I had like 12 kids sign up like off the bat. And I think by the end of the month, I had like 20 ish. And then we got to the end of the month. Of course, none of us hit 50,000 words like, but it became a community and like a safe place for kids to come and not just hang out, but to really delve into their creative sides and get to really have uh, choice and agency over what they were writing. Yeah. And so they were like, please, Miss Fitz, don't, don't cancel this. We want it to keep going. <laughs> okay. um, and so here we are like five years later and it's, and it's still going, although we did move um, to the local community center. It's called the Beaverton Activity Center. Okay. And they have like some really nice rooms. And so we meet over there instead of in my classroom. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, the importance of young people learning to express themselves with the written word seems like a no-brainer. But if we're all going to be communicating by cyber chat, you know, in a few <laughs> years, uh, how, how does that importance continue into our digital uh, new century? So we talk a lot about this um, in my classroom. I teach 11th and 12th grade English, mm-hmm. and we, we talk a lot about different registers. Um, so like you have academic register, which is the type of uh, language and communication that's appropriate in an academic setting. And then you have casual register, which is appropriate when you're texting someone, you know, LOL, what, <laughs> okay. yeah. and that's fine in that, in that setting. Um, we also talk about uh, like ways to communicate um, effectively like in different media. So we, part of our state standards here in Michigan are for kids to learn digital literacy. And so we do a media literacy project with my seniors where they get to learn how to assess and analyze different forms of media online for information, for the veracity of what's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they get to create some things uh, digitally also. So we're attempting to, you know, reach in that relevant direction uh, to prepare kids for college career, but also just being human beings in the 21st century. Yeah, right. That's something that I would have to imagine. We don't see it on screen in Trek, but would be a big um, part of Trek education in like the 23rd and 24th mm-hmm. century. You think about the uh, the possibly apocryphal anecdotes now about like young children trying to swipe like dead tree books, you know, because they're just so used to growing <laughs> up with uh, electronic media and having like holograms and holodecks and subspace communication, like in the future, they would have to be very uh, savvy in different forms or facilities of, uh, of that media communication. Yes. And I actually find it interesting because most of the times that we actually see a classroom in Trek, which is not all that often, um, it it looks more like a traditional classroom just with maybe some (laughs) upgraded um, equipment. And so, you know, on Deep Space Nine, we've got Professor Keiko in in her room. She's got a really fancy, you know, touchscreen at the front of the room, but kids are sitting in desks in rows facing forward. She's direct instructing, asking, you know, questions and kids are raising their hand um, and answering. And so I find it interesting that um, the creators of Star Trek kind of um, kept certain aspects of the, the quote unquote traditional forms of education, um, in the way that they portrayed it. But then also we get these other, you know, really cool, uh, uh, pictorial, uh, sort of learning, uh, 
I'm thinking of like Spock in the JJ verse, the little Spock when he's like, you <laughs> when know, they're in the little bubbles or, or yeah, whatever. the little <laughs> yeah. learning bubbles, and, and he's like answering all these questions at one time, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I I think the holodeck is like such a uh, underutilized learning tool. Oh, like, absolutely. why would you teach anywhere except the holodeck? Yeah, you yeah. Know? Like, I want kids to like read something, and then okay, now you're gonna like go go. Now play you're this. gonna be in Jane Eyre. Yes, <laughs> yeah. you're gonna go play this hollow novel or write your own hollow novel. You know, right? So yeah. There's it, it's interesting that we have that blending of the old and the new. Yeah. Uh, we've been at the Shoreleaf Convention this year, and you were on some panels about writing and education. Uh, you were also on a panel about Star Trek Adventures, the Modiphius role-playing game, uh, yes. which you're writing for. Uh, can you talk about how you got involved with Modiphius? So I met uh, Jim Johnson, I believe uh, we met online through some common Trek writer friends sure. um, and just got talking about this this project that he's editing, the the. Um, Star Trek Adventures line. Mm -hmm. And I was just really impressed with the way that this game is set up and how much it's really made to make you feel like you're in the Star Trek universe. Right. And you get to play your own episodes, essentially, um, and be the characters and make the choices. And and then game masters can obviously create their own um, adventures within within that setting. So I just thought it was a really cool way for fans to get to interact with the Star Trek property yeah. uh, in a new, interesting way. So when you're writing something that's a role-playing game like Scenario, it, what, what's the difference in... Uh, constructing the story, trying to leave it open-ended, you know, for player choice. How is it different than writing um, flash fiction or a short story? So the biggest difference for me coming at this as a fiction writer is there is no protagonist in a game because the players are the pro the protagonists and they have to be able to create themselves. You yeah. have no idea who <laughs> yeah. these characters are. You have no idea uh, what their internal conflicts are going to be, anything like that. You've got to leave those open as spaces that really anybody could plug into and still get something out of this interactive game experience. Right. So it, it kind of drops out. You know, we talk as as fiction writers that you've got character, you've got setting, and you've got plot are kind of like the three. There's a lot of other moving pieces in fiction, but those are like the three that you kind of have to get down um, to really understand the story that you're writing. And like one of those is non-existent <laughs> in, the, in the gay writing experience. And so that has been interesting for me to have to approach it more from the from the direction of how can I create a scenario that will be fascinating and challenging and interesting yeah. to any sort of Starfleet characters who approach this. That's so interesting. That's so enlightening for me as well, because I am a gamer and I've spent a lot of my young life and even well, somewhat older life, like writing these scenarios and campaigns and things like that for other players. But when I sit down to write fiction, I almost find it I find it difficult to sort of create or envision that idea of the central protagonist and I think you've helped me realize that it's I've been building these scenarios for like you know many players to be open-ended and I don't think about it as like well what is this character that people are going to follow um, also I think just like I have an acting background as well so I think of myself as like being the character if I'm going to uh create a scenario or just what the other characters are, are thinking and how they sort of interact with that person. So maybe that's my roadblock. I got <laughs> to get over that. 
I got to find some Holden Caulfield that I can take through this scenario. Yes, I I think that's that's a really interesting way of explaining it. Well, you're doing your job already. (laughs) Even with me. I appreciate that. Well, thanks so much for being on the show with me today. Uh, Like a lot of people, I'm really fascinated by this utopic future that's presented in Star Trek. And as we discussed just previously, it's a future that was created by writers who were not social scientists or futurists. And I think they proceeded in constructing it from the understandable but simplistic ideas of nuclear war and racism bad. And they kind Mm -hmm. of went from there. But for humanity to claw its way out of the rubble of World War III and into a golden age, it's going to need education and it's going to need teachers. And for a show that's literally about characters who went to an academy to become (laughs) scientific explorers, there's a glaring lack of teaching or educators we see on screen. You mentioned Keiko O'Brien before. Uh, Her school disappears essentially from DS9 uh, after a couple seasons. Um, We see Hoshi teaching xenolinguistics uh, Mm -hmm. in the pilot of Enterprise. And outside of that, I was trying to brainstorm and think of other scenes or characters related to education, and I couldn't come up with much. You know, I did the same, and there there are precious few. Um, though you really named the ones that really get any sort of um, f- like fronted screen time on yeah. that. Um, there's there's a lot of discussion, I think, especially around Captain Picard um, about sort of this idea of being free to educate yourself as an enlightened, uh, you know, uh, being in the galaxy. Um, but we don't get to see a lot of the actual teachers and educators who very clearly do exist, not just within Starfleet, but within the civilian populace. Um, I would love to see what a school on Earth looks like, you know, in the yeah. 24th century for non-Starfleet folks. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously they've they've got limited amount of time, but um, <laughs> there's I, I'm biased here, clearly. But I think that education is so important for a society to advance without uh, imploding, because as we get as we get more and more uh, options that we create for ourselves, we also open potential problems and uh I, I cannot wait until we master the scarcity, you know, problem mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and until we've eradicated war and such. Um, but I don't think we're going to get over that uh, hump without very direct, intentional instruction that involves ethics, mm-hmm. that involves um, how to have a peaceful dialogue with difference with others. Yeah. And that is foundationally built on rights for, I mean, we call them human rights. Star Trek would maybe call them sentient being rights, but the idea of of personhood and the idea that um, there, that you have a right as a being to exist and to not have to suffer. And that's not a universal, that's not a universally accepted principle, even, you know, in our society today. It would presumably be in the future of Star Trek. And of course, those would all be ongoing, if not totally assimilated and accepted concerns in classrooms that would not only be multiracial, but be, you know, multi-species, multi-alien. I mean, they'd have to get over that. I just realized that Hoshi taught at Amazon University. Yes. Which meant something a lot different in 2001. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm not the troubling uh, implications of that. I don't really like that idea. 
right? It sounds very commercial today, but yeah. uh, she literally was just in the Amazon rainforest. Um, <laughs> and her classroom actually is one of the, it, it has no technology that I saw uh, in that episode. She's teaching from like a pad of paper and right, they're just right. like sitting outside on these little benches. Yeah. And it's, that's its own kind of utopia, you know, in a way yeah. to be able to maybe step away from all of the, uh, all of the technology for a while. Yeah. Uh, Harry Kim's mom was a teacher, I think. Um, Spock's mom was a teacher. Um, yeah. But probably not in Vulcan because they had those uh, bubbles. Yeah. Uh, and Spock becomes an instructor at the Academy, I guess, in the movies. And in fact, I was thinking about it, like the Kobayashi Maru mm-hmm. may be the most explicit scene we get in a learning setting, like the actual oh. lesson that we see. And that's troubling because the lesson is you'll always <laughs> fail at some point, you know, the, the or, or the crazy psychological horror of your Academy evaluations. Uh, you know, people springing a fake disaster on you when you're just walking yeah. around, you know, if you're a right. Starfleet Academy a- applicant. That is troubling to me as an educator and I would feel you know what it really Pop reminds quiz. me of it reminds me of um, in Michigan we have the SAT as the state accepted mandated like graduation requirement standardized test yeah and we have to spend a significant amount of time prepping kids for this test that they take in 11th grade um, and they're I, I do my best to prep them for it, but it's still a test that in some ways is kind of designed for them to fail mm. um, because it's a sorting test and it's a norm reference test um, to some degree that is is trying to rank kids. And so it's hard to send these kids into this test knowing that many of them are going to be disappointed and take it personally. And so I can only imagine how the, you know, professors at the Academy are like, okay, take your Kobayashi Maru. Good luck. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Yeah. And they have to just be tight lipped about the fact that you're going to crash and burn because you have to. <laughs> so. Yeah. This kid only saved three people from a pipe explosion. I don't know if we can take him this year. Yeah. It's just, it's strange. Uh, our characters on the shows, they're boldly going or going boldly if you're a grammar teacher. So maybe the drama of the classroom isn't quite germane to space adventure, but on every show they're using scientific and social and military disciplines that were all learned in a classroom. And instead, uh, they're still being uh, learned by cadets and junior officers uh, during the process of the show. And I'd argue it's a side of the show that we could stand to see more of. They they do keep pitching, it seems like a Starfleet Academy show, but that, that, that yeah. never seems to come to fruition. Yeah, and I don't know if it's like an aversion to seeing like a lot of very young uh, characters, you know. I so it's funny because I I teach teenagers right every day, sure. and um, but I don't read a lot of YA fiction because. Okay then you're inside of a, a, a teenager's head for like the whole book. <laughs> right. so it's like, I, you know, I love my teenage students, but I can only take so much, uh, you know, of kind of the, the, that teenage um, experience uh, in one sitting. But I get the, the impression that like Starfleet Academy, at least from the episodes that we kind of got to see um, with like Wesley and, and Tom Paris, um, whatever his his not Tom Paris but pre Tom Paris character who showed up in that episode. Yeah, um, um, Nick Lacarno. Yeah. Um, so I get the impression that it is it's an experience where you're they're building character and um, it's it's kind of a supposed to be a grown up space. So yeah. I think it could work. I think they could do it in a way that would maybe 
uh, we get to see Starfleet officers really kind of struggling. Um, yeah. I really enjoy the episode where, uh, you know, they kind of screw up and they, they have to face that because as a teacher, I can tell you, even the best students sometimes make bad decisions <laughs> and <laughs> there's fallout from that, yeah. and, but it, but it's also a learning opportunity for everybody involved. And so I would watch that as a, as a teacher. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else would, but hopefully, think... <laughs> hopefully they wouldn't all be the uh, DS9 episode where <laughs> all the kids are on the training cruise, right? And they're on the, uh, the uh, defiant class ship and everything goes horribly wrong. Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to get your opinion on something specific uh, that's sort of a side thing uh it's about the character of jake and more specifically his development as a writer and an artist you know we see him become interested in writing and of course by the time he turns into tony todd you know he's a famous writer as somebody who's involved in mentoring kids in the practice of writing what do you think of ds9's portrayal of jake as an artist i thought it was pretty authentic yeah. um you know i i always applauded Captain Cisco for the way that he supported Jake in that. It maybe yeah. wasn't the first direction that he would have pictured for his son, but uh, he saw how passionate his son was about it and and that he had um, this desire to really be good at it. And so the other thing that's important in Jake's arc is that he decides to take some risks and he decides to, you know, go into the hard places to to get the story and to get the inspiration. And that's something that um, sometimes students don't understand is that there will have to be like sacrifices. If, if you really want to, you know, do, do this thing, you really want to be an author, you really want to do really whatever, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have to work really hard. Um, you might have to give some stuff up, but it's really cool to see the adults in his life um, be supportive. I bring it up because I, I tend to hate stories about writing. I feel mm -hmm. like, I don't know if it's the preciousness of somebody who is a writer, you know, writing about something that they had to go through. I was talking to uh, Jim Johnson actually about this on my show previously mm -hmm. and talking about how it's like, they always frame it as, oh, I've got to get that inspiration, you know? And then when <laughs> I lose the inspiration, then I'm all frustrated and I'm just sitting at my <laughs> desk and, and I've got to get it. And so much of writing is just, putting words on paper, you know, whether or not you necessarily mm -hmm. are inspired or know where they're going. It's about just like hammering it out and maybe getting inspiration in an edit or, you know, redirecting what you've already done. And TV is always just like, I got to find that thing. Maybe it's going to be <laughs> Meg Foster massaging my head is going to, that's what's going to help me write <laughs> yeah, this that, thing. Yeah, that scene was weird. <laughs> <laughs> but that idea of like the muse, right? That yeah, right. kind yeah. of like connects to you is... Um, we talk a lot in like writing instruction about craft. So writing is a craft, meaning that it takes a lot of practice. There are specific skills and tools that you can use and you can master and then use in various ways yeah. um, to kind of create your own voice and cultivate the sort of product that you're trying to create in words. Um, inspiration is a thing and, and it happens to all writers but um, you won't have a, a consistent writing practice if you only rely on inspiration. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to kind of meet it halfway, I guess I sure. say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you're engaging in the things that you're passionate about that you want to write about, you're going to have things to say 
you know, I, I always tell kids that when they're like, I don't, I don't have anything to write about. And I start asking them about, well, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? And they can talk my ear off about, you know, what, whatever video games or, or uh, pet rights or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> and so they, they have something inside them to say, they just then need the toolbox, so to speak, to get it uh, uh. on the page. And it, I think it also does vary a little bit maybe between or, or just individually from one writer to the next. For some people, writing is kind of um, almost a spiritual meditative uh, practice and they just kind of do it when they feel like it and it and that's all they want out of it. Yeah. Some writers do it for a career. And like you said, it's I have to write this many words by the end of the week and turn it into these three editors because that's my job and that's what I do. Yeah. Some people are, are in between, you know, it just kind of depends. But we would not have uh, nearly as many books in the world if writers only wrote when they got a lightning <laughs> bolt from a muse. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> the future of Star Trek, uh, you know, it's one of near instant communication and limit, limitless resources and multicultural exchange. So presumably uh, it's a golden age of education. And I was talking to uh, Dr. Mohammed Noor, who's a professor at Duke University about this. Um, and we were talking about how if you don't have to pay teachers uh, because everybody's taken care of, then you're not losing them to the corporate world or you're not having them quit because they can't afford to keep doing it. Um, class sizes are presumably not an issue when you can ostensibly study anywhere. And since tuition is free, a student in the 24th century would really have to want to drop out. Uh, presumably, the system would have no cracks for them to fall through. Presumably. I mean, um, the that aspect of being able to... Uh, you know, have a teacher who can live without worrying about their their <laughs> yeah. paycheck uh, changes the game because unfortunately the state of the education profession in the country right now is pretty dismal as far as teacher compensation and work uh, work commitments, class size, uh, stress levels, all that yeah. sort of stuff. And at at this point, if you're in teaching, it's because you're you care about making a difference in kids' lives. Oh, like yeah. nobody does this for the money. Yeah. But if you could reach that sort of a situation where the the money capitalistic element was removed entirely, I think it would revolutionize uh, everybody's ability to learn better. Um, and so, as far as like kids choosing to engage with the system or not. Um, there, there is always that element of a student has to want to learn, like you can't force someone to learn, yeah. but you can expose them to information that they will potentially realize was important later on and be, be happy that they had. And you can also give them opportunity. And I think that's what Star Trek's uh, utopian vision really excels at is that they've leveled the playing field, removed whatever glass ceilings were there for different populations. I teach in a very small rural district and a very high majority of our kids deal with poverty and poverty-related issues at home. And those uh, just come into the classroom and affect those students' abilities to learn and they still do like we we everybody does um their best to meet them where they are and to help them but if if you've removed poverty and if you've removed money altogether from yeah. the system then that disappears yeah. as a factor that could could hold kids back from really realizing their full potential yeah 
I actually come from a family of teachers and educators, um, and I myself flirted with teaching. I think I was mm-hmm. an elementary ed major for about a semester and a half in, uh, semester and a half in college. Um, so I know that teachers are chronically overpaid and underworked. You really have to want to be a teacher right now to be one. Um, mm-hmm. But in the 24th century, like you said, no poverty, no want, presumably free tuition, unlimited resources. I, I think that that would really change. And presuming that people's lives and, and jobs are similar to ours, but have more flexibility, it would really change the idea of continuing education from being something that an adult does to change a career or develop themselves more to something that anybody could do at any time. Like I get the impression from some some of the scenes that we see of Starfleet Academy that people are in the Academy at different ages. Like Kirk joins yes. the Academy we see in the Kelvin universe. I think he's like 25. Like he is past yeah. the point of being an undergrad by the time he joins uh, the Academy. Oh man, to not have you know, the debt of a degree following you, like many (laughs) people in my generation have, unfortunately, that would fundamentally change people's decisions of whether to seek additional schooling and to just learn more about things. I really think that education breaks down people's barriers and their uh, maybe their stereotypes and their preconceived notions about the world, the more you're exposed to and the more people that you, you interact with, it, yeah. it becomes harder and harder to kind of hold on to those those things. It, and yeah. that, that's a good thing for all of humanity. And so if, if tomorrow anybody could um, just decide, hey, I would love to study sociology or I would love to study psychology or literature or whatever, and they could just walk into a, an institution of learning and do that, Yeah, what a, what a better place we would live in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it becomes an investment of time, but not necessarily yes. money or finance. Yeah. Right. Um, I was talking, when I was talking to Dr. Noor, he compared education to a driving test. Like we want people to be able to drive. There's a social investment in people driving well. So we don't essentially bar someone from ever taking a driving test ever again if they fail it once or twice. You know, we they keep right. taking the test. So if it's in society's best interest to have an educated citizenry, why don't we treat education like a driving test? Agreed. Um, I, I think it's, oh, I think it was John Green that said something along the lines of, like, I don't have children, but I'm very happy to pay taxes into public education because I want an informed citizenry and yeah. I want to live in a society where people have education and are able to be their their best selves and to serve each other. Which I think is at the heart of, again, it's like this amazing fiction, like everybody's going to want to help each other. That To me, that's the most fictional part of Star Trek, yeah. not the warp drive, unfortunately. Right. But uh, it is something that we can actually accomplish, I think if we try hard enough. Um, As you mentioned before, it's the weird sort of archaic nature of the structure of education as we see it in the 24th century is of interest, I think. I don't think that the writers thought it through very much. And there's a lot to like about our current system of preschool, elementary and secondary education, undergrad, postgrad. But it's weird to think that it's apparently the only way to structure education. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. even in the 24th century, we hear Janeway talking about what she did in high school or Harry Kim got a B on his book report in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And humanity has contacted so many other cultures Presumably, every classroom is super integrated with aliens. I can't believe that they're still using grades and they haven't found a better way to to educate. Agreed. And um, we see that a little bit uh, in the the episode... when the bow breaks with the Aldeans. Right. And we have like little Harry who is, I don't know, he looks maybe like 
eight or nine and he's studying calculus and he doesn't want to and he's like griping about his calculus homework just <laughs> like you know kids today gripe about their math homework and but it, but then the Aldean culture you know is more focused on kind of art and music and lets the lets the children pursue the their interests that they have right uh, and so I think the 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 best sort of model is somewhere in between there. Like there are a lot of things that citizens of an informed society need to know that they might not want to study as young adults. <laughs> and yeah, so for example, you know, reading the the constitution or um, in my class, I teach an English class, but we do a project on human rights um, to, to learn research methods. Hmm. And we start by reading the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights okay. from the 1940s. And it's this founding document. It's it's not inaccessible. It's in, you know, it, it, it it's something that the kids can read. Is it something they would choose to pick up and read? Eh, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> so there are, I think there are some things that um, maybe need to be in the curriculum that kids might not be like super jazzed about, but we also still have this sort of standardized model of everybody um, needs to pass the same test and even go at the same pace in a lot of cases, which really just is not ideal. And right now is only being uh, continued because of lack of staffing and lack of resources to, to, do anything different you know when, you, when you've got 37 kids in a room you can't you can't teach 37 different things at one time um, but if you switch up that model um, there's a lot of different possibilities kind of open up um, but it, it is interesting that Starfleet's model seems to be very very human like you said I, I highly doubt that education has evolved in the exactly the same way on all these other worlds <laughs> yeah right so why are we still doing exams you yeah. know Wesley has to leave <laughs> the enterprise to go take his exams like why why can't there be like a cognitive scan or why can't there be like a simulation or right. I don't like there's got to be other more efficient ways than than exams right? I wonder if the bubbles are have different grades like okay now you're done move to the sixth grade bubble <laughs> It well, seems... based on like Vulcan's kind of obsession with with being bright um, or, <laughs> or getting things right, it seems like there's got to be a grade or a score of some kind. Yeah, and there's a Vulcan Academy as well. So yeah, it seems like there's a nod or something of a nod to the sci-fi idea of like knowledge tapes and like electric learning um, mm -hmm. in the original series. Like Uhura gets her mind wiped by Nomad, but they give her some tapes and she's presumably re-educated, uh, at least enough that she's back on the bridge by the next episode. Yeah, and there's, um, I mean, people, there's a lot of sci-fi that talks about being able to upload and download things from your brain, you know, yeah, yeah. and I can see that being very realistic within, you know, however many decades here, once we get that technology. So <laughs> yeah. I, it's interesting. Uh, it's also very interesting to me in like a positive way that there are still paper books in the 24th century. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Every, I mean, presuming that we're not just sleep learning and our data beds off camera, you know, we have to assume that the more traditional methods of teaching and the uh, tools are there and we don't ever get a sense of the tools that educators have access to. Everybody gets their own iPad, I'm sure, but yep. we don't see how the technology is employed in, the ed in education. Um, we do see that the Enterprise D has like 
like a Fisher Price version of the main yeah. computer that the kids can go <laughs> on, you know, in the nursery or the elementary school. And they like hack it while they're <laughs> right. Yeah, they well, they have to hack it for the episode. Yeah, I'd imagine that as you mentioned, the holodeck would be indispensable as a tool in yes. education. Yes. I mean, we would be taking trips to all kinds of places. Like right now, field trips are so expensive, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I wondered why, like, why was Keiko, like, teaching about the wormhole from inside the station? Like, why would you not take the kids on a runabout and go to the wormhole? Right, and, like, yeah. take them through the wormhole while you're teaching them that kind of Miss Frizzle style, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, but, uh, Trip was excited when he got to go to Pensacola, but, like, these kids get to go into the wormhole. So, yeah. <laughs> I would be excited about that. Um, but I did like how um, DS9 tackled uh, sort of the issue of what's appropriate content to teach in the hands of the prophets. Yeah, when, yeah. when um, Kai, is, it's Kai Wynn who yeah. comes in and she's like, oh, she's not Kai yet, but she's um, she comes in and makes a big deal about how Keiko is teaching the science of the wormhole. And I that I can see that would still be an issue in the 24th century, especially if you have a lot of different species and cultures um, mixing together in a classroom. Oh, for sure. And you wrote an essay for Women at Warp about uh, faith in the 24th century. I did. Um, which might be outside of the purview of this discussion, but I, it was something that, you know, every PTA meeting, would it be completely fraught with like 27 <laughs> different uh, races who have uh, religious uh, objections to the curriculum? Right. And I, I guess maybe DS9 was a was a special case because it was a Cardassian station next to Bajor that the Federation was running. And so <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody had a clear idea of whose job it was to actually dictate that curriculum. Yeah. Whereas in most institutions, you have a board of ed, you have a mission statement, you you have, you know, here's the guidelines for how we decide. Here's the forum for discussion and stuff like that. Yeah. And you have Keiko, who's just trying to be a community booster, and she sort of I puts know. a school together, and suddenly people are yelling at her. Yeah. And they blow up her school. They do. Um, <laughs> but she, I think she handled it pretty well. I think that's one of her stronger episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with holographic technology, distance learning might even be the norm in the 24th century. You could attend class as a hologram or have your professor yeah. appear in your home. Would any kid ever have to go to school? Are we all going to be University of Phoenix alums in the future? So there's a lot of research right now in the education world on online learning versus in-person learning. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between giving a kid a computer portal that has like online tutorials and modules that will self-grade themselves versus sitting them down with a content expert and who's responsive and they can ask questions to and who will build that relationship. And so far, most of the research says that content experts are irreplaceable mm. as of right now. You, you can't replace putting a teacher in a room with students. Now, however you want to set up that room or how you structure those discussions is, is a different issue. But having kids have regular access to, to well-trained literacy experts, at least in the field of English, because that's, that's what I'm familiar with, yeah. um, is, the, is the one thing that will, uh, has the most impact on their ability to learn. So that doesn't mean that the the distance learning or the the online learning formats um, 
can't work. And it's a little different if you're able to talk to your instructor via technology uh, on a regular basis. Right now I'm taking a graduate class through uh, Michigan State University in advising journalism because mm -hmm. I also teach um, yearbook. Mm -hmm. And it's technically, it's called an online class, but really I um, the instructor is so open and accessible that it, it doesn't feel very much like an online class. Okay. And I, I really like that aspect. Huh. Um, yeah, I mean, like citizens of the Federation have access to subspace communication and presumably right. they have vast databases of information. We always see data, you know, Googling something on the Enterprise <laughs> and having access to presumably every non-sensitive bit of available data in human history would be a total game changer for educators. Um, no more textbooks. College bookstores would be a thing of the past or they just sell varsity right. wear, I guess. Um and presumably, like the major colleges still exist in the future. Um, we hear that, I think Data is a lecturer at Cambridge, at least in that yep. uh, future timeline. Do you think that distance learning and universal access to information would lead to a homogenization of the collegiate experience? You know, would you lose the character of a specific institution in higher learning? I think there, there are so many traditions and personal legacies tied up in those experiences right now yeah. that the landscape would have to change dramatically for people to let those go. Okay. Uh, so there, you know, if you have gone to, even just here in my home state of Michigan, we have the University of Michigan and we have Michigan State. And the idea that those two could ever combine into the same thing, because there's this really harsh rivalry, <laughs> right? And it, that is like unthinkable in this in this state. Now, that's yeah. not to say that you couldn't come up with a system <laughs> to do that. But the, but people hold those things dear. And I think they enjoy them. Like yeah. they like the sort of I, I'm a state person or I'm a Cambridge person sure. or whatever. Now, there might be potentially some elitism built into that. So if we're talking about a utopic system, I don't know how that jives, you know, how does that dovetail? That's interesting. I mean, you could attend Harvard from space, but only students that physically attended, you know, Harvard would be getting into it with uh, townies in Boston bars. Right. And there's, you know, there there's that sort of kind of exclusionary principle um, that that comes in with when we talk about who has access to education and, and who doesn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I have a hard time believing that they would uh, disappear. Entirely. <laughs> yeah. The physical access uh, actually seems uh, more magnified than, or the problem of it. Um, I mean, if everybody can go to Harvard, if price and space aren't mm -hmm. really a factor, I was talking with author Manu Sadia on the show about the idea of this elimination of scarcity in this future. And his theory was that like merit would be the last real currency in a post-scarcity world. Um, like the one realm of exclusivity left would be the meritocracy of achievement. Anybody can get a degree online from Harvard, but attending the school physically and rubbing elbows with other accomplished students and staff would be just for the people who had proved themselves through academic achievement. And that seems to be very alive and well in the Star Trek universe, at, at least the from Starfleet's perspective, because right. we yeah, see yeah. the the cadets working so hard to achieve. They're not they're not getting commission, like they're not getting money from Starfleet yeah, to like right. be an admiral, but they still very much want to achieve that. Um, Picard, you know, is not happy being a junior grade officer or whatever his his little. <laughs> yeah dream sequence shows him. Yeah. So I, I would agree with that, that there's there's this idea of um, being able to achieve something. Yeah. There, there can be a danger in putting too much emphasis on trying to be better than others, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and I think, I don't know where that line is, but it's, yeah. um, 
the ability to provide like a, a needed service or something for society is never going to not matter. Yeah. And the, the real irony is that except for just the larger question of scarcity in our society, we've kind of already hit like a very similar uh, sort of level that to what they have in Star Trek. I mean, we have a wealth of information readily accessible on the Internet and mm-hmm. we've got teachers like at all levels. And I think that like with the structure, the, the way that the digital age has changed uh, education and access to information the teacher in the classroom has become less of the sage that educates you in all the things that they know, uh, the gatekeepers of wisdom, and they're more like a facilitator of learning and providing context and guidance on the information that you're assimilating. I think guide is a good word um, because the more information that's out there, the harder it is to wade through it. So that's okay. why we spend so long on media literacy in my senior English class because a lot of students don't know how to tell fact from fiction versus satire versus, okay. you know, yeah. anything else. And so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there, but being able to parse it, being able to analyze it and break it down and actually know what you're looking at yeah. and be able to interpret that effectively is still very much a skill that needs to be taught. It can't really, it, you can't just kind of dive in and hope that you can swim in that. And you can get an Andorian text and run it through Google Translate, but do you have any context <laughs> or how does it, you know, translate? Translate to English or whatever other language you're using. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the really funny thing is, you know, we talk about how the uh, increase in communication has brought everybody closer together in our world and also in Starfleet. But for the uh, in the Federation, I have to say, should say, but for the families in Starfleet or uh, on colonies or on space stations who are cut off from larger population centers. And you might, they might have a panoply of races who have different customs or learning needs. It almost turns like every remote classroom, like Keiko's, into a one-room schoolhouse in space, um, mm-hmm. which is a good pitch, I think. Yeah, and I think some of that is just like ingenuity and people will figure it out like on Voyager uh, they weren't planning to be stuck out there that long and <laughs> yeah, right. here's Naomi Wildman right. like wants to learn from everybody and you know wants to wants to, seven to teach her and so you have to figure it out uh, wherever you are I want I'm curious um, the the folks on Terralisium in Discovery like would they just got like you know, transported there. I'm curious right. what they did for for education. Like, was there a teacher in the room? If not, okay, like, who's, and, yeah. and what do you teach? Like, because your, your society is gone. There's, like, yeah, there's a big faith-based element too. So I figure like everybody on Tier Elysium is just like six generations of homeschooled kids. Yeah, that might be, that might be true too. Um, <laughs> Nothing against homeschool kids. <laughs> no, but it's, it's a different sort of a dynamic. Yeah. Well, I think that we're always going to need teachers and administrators to navigate the kind of challenges that we have talked about today. Yeah, at the very least, the idea of of teaching is really to be able to allow someone to open their mind to possibility and give them opportunity to discover their own capacity to think and to interact with the world. And that is always going to be a thing as long as the human race exists. We yeah. will need people who are trained in that. And I'm, I feel very lucky and um, to have this career because I get to work with kids every day. And I know that no matter what else happens throughout the day, no matter how crappy it is, like it's making a difference in, in some lives. And so I think that's worth it. And you're not getting replaced by a bubble anytime soon. 
I don't think so. I, I, I think that was a long way off. The, bu- the bubble can ask you how you feel, but it's really weird and it kind of brings everything to a halt. The bubble can come assist me if it wants yeah, to. Okay, sure. <laughs> it's 10 minutes in the bubble for you. Um, well, thanks so much for talking with me today. Uh, this is a subject that I feel has been tangentially touched on on this show, but I'm glad we were able to tackle it head on. So I appreciate you coming on. Let people know where they can find you online. Sure. Uh, you can find me at my website, which is kellyfitzpatrick.com, and that's Kelly with an I. Uh, and I am frequently at the Farpoint and Shore Leave conventions in Baltimore. That's great. And do you know when we can expect to see your work with Star Trek Adventures be released? I don't know the release date yet, okay. uh, but Modiphius has been just uh, prolific in the amount of content that they're putting out. Yeah, so yeah. I am I am excited um, to to see this in print. I know you have to be somewhat secretive about it. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't <laughs> yes. say anything about it yet. I understand. But um, I I'm excited. It's it's going to be awesome. Well, good luck with that. Thank you so much, and thank you for the conversation and for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you. 